Well, good morning, church. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Blake Jenkins, and I serve here as the minister to college students. I'm so grateful to be with you here this morning at Pastor David's invitation to preach in his absence while he and his wife Danielle are out of town. But we'll be continuing on in our series of, in Galatians, picking up in chapter 4, verse 8, here in this hour. There are many different ways and reasons that we take the proverbial stroll down memory lane, right? So there are times, you know, whether it's with family, uh, you know, we're going to be getting pretty close uh, to the holiday season here soon with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. Some of you are already getting a jump on Christmas music, I've heard. And so some of you are those people that uh, now that uh, the weather has turned just a little bit, Christmas music, right? And so when uh, you have the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, everybody comes together. Undoubtedly, there are the strolls down memory lane, uh, holidays past, family vacations, different things like that. Or it could be at a rehearsal dinner before a wedding, right? Uh, people at the rehearsal dinner for the bride-to-be, for the groom-to-be get up and they start taking strolls down memory lane. And some of them you know, are just really heartwarming and and others of them, you're like, I really wish you wouldn't say that here in this room with this group assembled. But then we have, uh, you know, like when you get together with, you know, your college buddies or, you know, your roommates from back in the day. You, you take a stroll down memory lane for the nostalgia or for the old punchlines, inside jokes, different things like that. But then there's the type of going down memory lane that we haven't mentioned yet. And, and it's taking the stroll down memory lane to make a point. To high, and especially the point to highlight the absurdity of a particular choice or decision that someone has made. Uh, my parents did this with me, uh, particularly in the age range of 16 and 17. Uh, it was there, you know, it, this is representative of a conversation that we had probably multiple times. Uh, but it would start off something like this. You know, Blake, remember what it was like before you could drive do you remember what it was like before you had your license and before we got you that 98 Ford? Do you remember how you were utterly dependent on us to get anywhere that you wanted to go? But do you remember the freedom that you felt being able to drive yourself to school, to church, to the ball field, to anywhere else? And do you remember how we told you it's very important that you don't speed because there are consequences that come with that. And you remember how we told you there's this one section of road in particular where there always seem to be speed traps. Then how is it the case that you continue to speed? If you continue on in the direction that you're going, you will find yourself very much like you were before you could start driving. And now I turn around and do the very same thing with my almost three-year-old son. You know, Thomas, you know, will come here. Hey, buddy, come here. Thomas, do you remember what it was like before you had craft supplies? <laughs> do you remember that particular day when we went and we got you that awesome Spider-Man art set complete with pencils and pens and markers? You remember all the fun we had and all the things that we were able to color in your Spider-Man coloring book, how awesome it all looked? And you remember when we said, okay, we don't have to put it up yet, but we've got to go over here. We've got to cook dinner, but you have got to color in your coloring book. Because remember, if you color on anything else than your coloring book, then it will ruin your marker and anything else you color on. 
So how is it that as soon as I go out of the room, you make a beeline to our white couch cushion and treat it like a coloring sheet? If you continue on the path that you're going, you're going to find yourself like you were before you had craft supplies. <laughs> we take a stroll down memory lane sometimes to make a point, to highlight the absurdity of a particular choice or action that's been recently taken. The Apostle Paul is doing something very similar in our passage in Galatians chapter 4 this morning. And as we look at this, as he's going down memory lane, as he is recounting all of these things for the Galatians and showing them what's going to happen if they continue on their current path, it's not as if he's going to get to the end and threaten to take something away from them. But no, it is far more dire than that because it's not as if something's going to have to be taken away, but that they are actually giving their blessedness in the gospel away freely of their own volition. It is that absurd. And so we look at Galatians chapter 4, picking up in verse 8. And we see first in verses 8 through 11, the danger of relapsing into religion. Paul begins verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So he's painting the picture of what they were like before they came to know God. And before they came to know God, they were ignorant and enslaved. They did not have any knowledge of the true and living God. And not just that, even in their pagan religion or non-religion, they were actually serving non-gods. So they were ignorant without knowledge. And they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But then he moves from what they were to who they are right now in verse 9. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, this is who they are now. You've come to know God. You've come to be known by God. And when you look at this word know, to know, you see that it is a theologically loaded word filled with freight from the Old Testament. That it has these connotations of God's loving choice. So much so that when Paul is saying right here, but now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God, he could be saying now that you've come to love God because rather God has loved you. Or rather that you have chosen God because God has first chosen you. Paul has said, you have the Lord of all creation that you know and that knows you. That you love and that loves you. That cho you chose and chose you. That should be enough, right? But then he has to give them a stern warning about the direction that they're taking and what will happen if they continue down this path. So he says, now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. You see, they're in the process of turning back to slavery again. He's already said that they were enslaved by those who in their nature are not gods. And we have more clarity on what these are. They're the elementary principles of the world. And if you were here last week, you know, Pastor David was talking about in verse uh, 3 of this same chapter, the elementary principles of the world, 
that he joined a long line of biblical scholars in saying that any worship that is not given to the one triune God is in its essence demonic worship. And so for these pagans, like the Galatians and their pagan religion prior, yeah, they were copulating in temples. They were sacrificing to graven images so that they would have long-lasting health, numerous children, high-yielding crops. They were doing all of this. And Paul says, you're turning back, but it's not to that. But now it is to zealous following of biblical detail. You are submitting yourself again under the law. And what Paul is doing right here, it's staggering. Because he is equating them going back to their pagan gods with them trying to live under the law to earn a right standing with God. Before it was full-on pagan worship, but now it is nice and neat religious observance. Both done apart from the saving work of Christ. Both lead to the same place, enslavement to non-gods. And so these false teachers, they were coming in. They were saying, yeah, believe in Jesus, but then do the works of the law. And that's how you'll be accepted in God's sight. Yeah, believe in Jesus, but yeah, observe these days and months and seasons and years. And oh yeah, get circumcised. Chapter 5, verse 2, it's coming. They're not there yet. But take your schedule, take your body, and give yourself to this way of living, and then you will be right in God's eyes. And that is where Paul sees this, and he says emphatically, no. This is not the gospel. This is not what you are to give your life to, because the false teachers, they were distorting it. They were saying that belief and living under the law lead to salvation. But rather what Paul has been saying is that belief and salvation go together and lead to works of the law. That we see, you'll see it on the screen right here. We as Christians, we don't follow God's law. We don't do good works to earn a relationship with Christ. But rather we follow God's law and we do good works to express the relationship with Christ that we already have. When we are doing these things, we need to get the order right. That it is Christ and Christ alone who saves and brings us into his family. And now that we are a part of the family, we live that out. But we're not trying to accumulate enough good work deposits in our spiritual bank account so that we can bring the balance up to zero or even have a sum to present to God in our own righteousness. No, this is false teaching that has infiltrated the church at Galatians. So, I mean, the question has to be asked, I mean, what does this mean for us here today? To my knowledge, that has not infiltrated the church here at Dawson. But it does open up a wider conversation about false teaching. And it might not be here, it might not be this particular false teaching, but there will be a time where you come across false teaching. It could be in the church, it could be in the workplace, it could be in your home. It could be talking with someone. It could be someone knocking on your door. It could be having a son or a daughter, grandson, granddaughter coming back home from college, and they've been talking with someone. And then it can be kind of daunting. And it's like, well, how do I even begin to recognize false teaching? And what do I do with it? How do I know if someone is spreading the truth or spreading falsehood? 
Well, there was a few years ago, I was listening to a pastor as he was working his way through the book of Titus, and he got to a portion where he was talking about false teachers, and he gave these three very helpful diagnostic questions that maybe will be helpful for you in the same way they were for me. That whenever you have those times that come, being able to ask these three questions and pressing beyond surface-level answers will help you to know whether or not you're dealing with false teaching. The first one is this, what is their authority? What is their authority? What are they basing what they're saying on? What are they appealing to? What are they quoting? What are they pointing to? And the second one is this, what do they say about God? What do they say about his character? What do they say about his actions? Who he is, what he does. And then the third one is, what do they say about having a relationship with him? How are you in? How do you have peace with God? And when you have these three questions and when you start to press in, you'll start, it'll become abundantly clear where people diverge, right? So we have, like the false teachers, if they were to answer these three questions, they probably would answer very similarly to the Apostle Paul in questions one and two. What is your authority? It's God's word. Who is God? He's a holy God. But then question three is where things would start to make all the difference. How do you have a relationship with him? Well, the false teachers would say, well, you believe in Jesus and you do the works of the law and then you're accepted in his sight. And Paul would say, no. You have a relationship with God only and always because of the finished work of Christ. It is only because of him. As Pastor David preached last week, we are no longer slaves, but we are adopted sons into the family of God. We are part of the family. Now we live that out. We have the relationship with him, but the Galatians were abandoning this. Think think with me. Let's do some biblical imagining together. Let's see if if we go back to the Gospel of Luke and the parable of the prodigal son. And we have in that parable, if you're familiar with it, the younger son goes to his dad, says, give me my inheritance, and he goes to a far land. He squanders that inheritance and reckless living. He's down in the depths of human depravity, and then he says, I'm going to go back home, but I'm just going to go back home as a hired hand. But he gets back home. The father receives him with opened arms, hugs him, showers him with kisses, puts a robe on him, rings, sandals, Kills the fattened calf and they have a party, right? He has been virtually adopted back into the family. But what if in that year following, some of the people in that same village stroll up to the homestead? And they start to, you know, they see the younger son walking back uh, from uh, some of his duties as a part of the family now. And they say, I mean, do you really think that you're back in? Do you really think you're a part of the family? I mean, your dad's not telling you everything. Like, I mean, I know that whole thing with the party and with the fattened calf and all that, that that was convincing. But really, do you realize how much you took? What kind of position you put your family in? Because, I mean, your dad, he had to liquidate everything to be able to give you that loose money. You need to start going around. You need to start working hard. You need to start accumulating so you can pay your dad back. And what if the younger son bought it? What if the younger son started missing family meals? What wasn't at his place at the table that his father had given him? He's out working, trying to accumulate enough to maybe scrounge up some of just what he had taken. It would be a tremendous insult to his father, who has already freely accepted him back into the family. 
You see, he's not at that point doing it as a member of the family. He's doing it to earn his place in the household. And the Galatians are doing something that would be similar here. That they already have this relationship with God, but they are listening to others who are coming in and they are whispering lies. That you must do this for God to love you. You must do this. You must observe this. You must embark upon this for God to accept you. They're relapsing into religion. And the only way that Paul can move forward, we see, is in verses 12 and following. And it's by staging a spiritual intervention. I imagine that here Paul has to take a long pause. He's just finished a three and some odd chapters argument, sustained argument about how we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And now we see Paul's ministerial heart bleeding on the page in front of us. But you see, these particular verses, they're not just for the clergy. They're not just for the professional Christians. But these verses are for anyone who has someone in their life that they want to be an agent of reconciliation, of healing, and hope for. That if there's anybody in your life that's going down a certain path, these are verses that we can go to, that we can receive encouragement from and direction on how to approach those that we love. The first thing that we can see in verses 12 and following is this. Meet them where they are and call them to more. Meet them where they are and call them to more. Brothers and sisters, verse 12, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. So here, in Galatians chapter 4, we have the first imperative, the first command to do something in the book of Galatians. And it's become like me. He gives this charge, and then he gives the basis for that charge. He says, for I have become like you. So let's look at that first. For I have become like you. This is reminiscent of language that Paul would use in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he gives that long list, and then it culminates at the end where it says, I have become all things to all people, that by any means I might win some. And one of those things in that long list is, I have become like those outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. He's talking about the Galatians. He's talking about those who did not have any sort of inheritance with the land of Israel. And he said, I've become like those that are on the outside, so that I might be like them and that I might win them. And now, as he has... As he has brought them in, as they now share in the gospel, they are seeking to become like those that are under the law. And Paul's like, y'all, I've been there. And I did it a whole lot better than you all are doing it right now. It's like when he gets to Philippians chapter 3 and basically he is unloading his religious resume before he met Christ. Circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, persecutor of the church, as to the law, blameless. But I count all of those things as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ as Lord. That Jesus is better than all of these other things that can't save. That we have right here, Paul's saying, I know the road that you're going down, and I'm telling you it leads only to death and enslavement. I have become like you. Become like me. 
become as one who is out from underneath the law, the one who has now experienced freedom in Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus. He's calling the Galatians to change their direction. He tells them, don't keep going the way that you're going. I've been that way before, but now follow me. I've become as you are, now become as I am. It seems in this day and age that people like to say only one of those things. I've become like you or become like me. You have those that say, I've become like you that are really great at sympathizing with people, meeting people where they're at, getting down in the muck and the mire of human sin and brokenness, but just to stay there, just to at first sympathize and then over time start to sanctify it. And to say, I mean, who really is to say what's right? I mean, how are we supposed to do it? You just live your truth, uh, do it so earnestly. I mean, we're all just slogging away in this thing called life anyway. People that only say, I've become as you are, meet people where they're at, but leave them there. And then you have those that say, become as I am. Those who seem to speak from some sort of elevated position and they only got up there because they were pushing everyone else down along the way. People that are rigid and flexible and demanding and people that don't care at all where people are at, but calling them to be more. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be like me. I'm the model. There are distortions on both ends when we only say, I've become as you are or become like me. But we need Christians with integrity, Christ followers to say, both of them together, I have become like you. I know your hurts. I know your hangups. I know your hopes. I know your longings. I know your fears. And there is someone and something that speaks to that. There is a way that leads to life. Become as I am. We need to meet people where they're at. And then we need to call them to more. And the second thing that we see is we need to remind them of your relationship and shared experiences. Verses 13 and following. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and then given them to me. Paul paints this graphic picture to highlight the closeness with which they, were, they had had. The, the Galatians, like he said, you know, he was traveling around, he was planting churches, he had to stay in Galatia a little bit longer because he was sick. And it wasn't just any kind of sickness, it was apparently one that was really burdensome to the people. But they received him, and in that time they received the gospel. They shared in that blessedness together, and they became so close that he said, you would have plucked your eyes out and given them to me if you thought it would have helped. And he is reminding them. Even though the false teachers are trying to undo everything that he's done, they are maligning him in their eyes. They are trying to shut them off from him so that they can make much of them. That Paul is reminding them of the strong relational connection that they have. It, it lets me know that uh, Samuel Johnson, the 18th century uh, writer and literary critic, he was onto something when he said that people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. 
people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. And Paul, he's done both in this letter. He's reminded and instructed, but the emphasis lies right here on him reminding the Galatians of the gospel that they received at the first and of the shared life that they have together in it. It would be beneficial for you if there are those that are in your life that are going down a particular path where they're abandoning everything that you hold to be true, where you see that someone is relapsing into religion of any kind, for you to go to them and to remind them of the shared blessedness that you have in the gospel. Remind them of that experience, of that conversation with you, with the pastor, with the loved one. Remind them of their baptism to look back on that time. For you to look back together and remind them of what you have because of the finished work of Christ. We often need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. We're so prone to wander, so prone to forget. We need each other to help us remember. And then lastly, we need to speak the truth in love. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the culmination at the end of this section that Paul, he is compelled to speak the truth in love to his brothers and sisters in Galatia. You see, the false teachers, they were flattering the Galatians so that the Galatians would turn around and flatter them, that they were speaking well and speaking highly of and making a big deal about the Galatians so that they would respond in kind. They were creating this perpetual echo chamber of, you're awesome, no, you're awesome, no, you're awesome, no, you're awesome. And they're looking back and forth saying, yes, yes, yes. And Paul speaks clearly into this moment, very much in line with Proverbs 27, 6 which says, faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of the enemy. Paul puts the Galatians ahead of himself and ahead of his reputation. He is willing to wound with his words, not as a brawler, not as a power broker, but as a faithful friend. You see, there'll be those that come to you if you are finding yourself in sin and brokenness, and habits, or hang-ups. There'll be those that come to you and say, everything's fine. Everything's great. You don't need to change. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's gonna come, it's gonna come through. Don't listen to them. They might be showering you with those verbal kisses, but they're an enemy, and it's only distracting you from seeing the millstone that they're tying around your neck. And then there will be those times where you see loved ones that are going off down a path that you would never want to see them go down. They're relapsing into religion of its various kinds, all being enslaved to non-gods. And sometimes we care more about our reputation. We care more about how we are perceived by the other person than actually loving that other person. That we say, oh, I'll talk about this someday. Oh, I'll get around it to that point. Oh, I don't want to do anything to fracture the relationship. Oh, I don't want to create any sort of rift because then I never would get a hearing. But we actually never seem to get around to having that conversation. 
that we need to be encouraged by like what the writer of Hebrews would say, that we need to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there was a time when I was in college. Um, suffice it to say, I was hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, so I was living in this small apartment in Tuscaloosa. We crammed like five or six guys in there. We had a guy living in our dining room. Uh, I mean, we, we made that an extra bedroom and put a shower curtain up. It didn't even have a door. Dave, bless him. I uh, can't believe he lived with us, but we were super thankful that he did. And there was one day I was in that apartment and I was in our matchbox-sized kitchen, fake linoleum floors, artificial granite countertop, all that kind of stuff. And I was like microwaving a hot dog or something like that, I don't know, or something equivalent, you know, for that season of life. And one of my other roommates, Nathan, comes in. And Nathan, you know, we start with the surface level small talk. How's your day going? How's that class test go good? All that kind of stuff. And then I, I have to think it's because Nathan was observing some patterns, was observing some behaviors in my life. And so he started asking some more probing questions. And so I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm just going to answer. And I, in my born-again heart, though, that I was still struggling with my flesh, I floated out an answer, hoping that he wouldn't say anything. Hoping that his silence would be a validation for me and the choices that I was making and the actions that I was doing. And so I floated out there and I hope that he just lets it go and so that I can keep doing what I'm doing. But thanks be to God that Nathan didn't do that. That Nathan didn't seek to preserve some sort of false harmony. That Nathan didn't save that conversation for another time at another day, but that in that moment, he put his hand on our fake granite countertop and he looked at me with conviction and with kindness and he said, Blake, you know that's not okay, man. You know that's not okay. And that opened the floodgates for repentance and God's kindness in the middle of that kitchen. Where he was able to encourage me, able to pray with me. And I thank God that I was able to see that indeed faithful are the wounds of a friend. Rather than the kisses of the enemy. And that he met me in that moment and that he challenged me. And that he called me to more. He met me where I was at. He reminded me of the blessedness that we share in the gospel. And that he brought me back. He forever gave me a picture of Jesus speaking the truth in love. Of the apostle Paul speaking the truth in love. And so now on the days even where I'm still tempted to be a yes man and a people pleaser where I have to seek to love others so much to tell them the truth and to do so with conviction and kindness in my heart in the same way that it was done for me. So Nathan, he was doing in line exactly what the Apostle Paul was doing right here in Galatians. And Paul was doing only what his Lord and Master had done for him. And by extension, what he's done for all of us. Because you see, Jesus, he was the one. He was the one who met us where we were at, who condescended, who came, incarnated among us, was like us in every way, tempted in every way, but yet was without sin. He met us where we were at, but he didn't just leave us there. 
He called us to more. He called us to repentance. He called us to belief. He called us to himself. And now we follow him. And now we are to remember of the union that we have with him, the relationship that we have with him and with everyone else. We can remember he's given us signs. We can look back to our baptism where we can say, I have been united with Christ. This has already happened in my heart and I'm letting everyone else know, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. That we have the Lord's Supper that we take regularly to remember, do this in remembrance of me. For us to remember the union that we have with Christ, the shared experiences here and now. And we have Jesus who has spoken the truth in love. Not just in his life and ministry, but in his saving death and resurrection. Because it's there at the cross that we see the love and truth together. We see the truth about us. That our sin was so grievous that Jesus had to die. But we see the love of God and that he was willing to. That we see these two truths mingled in the gospel that I've heard put so beautifully before. That you and I in our sin, it is worse than we could ever believe. But we are more loved than we could ever dare hope. The situation is so much worse than we could think. But God and what he has done to rectify it is so much stronger than anything else we could draw up. That God has done everything for us. God has brought us into the family. There's no need for us to work to try and pay back to earn a spot at the table. But for us just to live and to love and to serve as those who are a part of the family. There will be times where we ourselves or others that we love will relapse into religion. And the only cure for relapsing into religion is a gospel intervention. One where we take a stroll down memory lane, remembering all that God has done for us along the way. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for doing what we could. We thank you for coming to where we are, for we could never get to you. We would continue to be ignorant. We would continue to be without hope, enslaved in bondage. But God, you have come to us. Help us to go to others. Help us to call them to more. Father, there might be those here this morning who don't know you, who are striving in their own efforts to try and please you. And you're calling them out. You're calling them to rest, to rest in the finished work of Christ. God, help us. Help us to remember the truth that you've shown us in love. We thank you through Christ. Amen.